This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with two Thoughtbot designers, Galen Frechette and Alex Baldwin. How's it going, guys? Good. How are you doing, Ben? Awesome. Hey there. So I have some notes here, which I'm supposed to ask you about a couple different things. All right. Uh, cool. And I thought the first thing we talk about is product design sprints. Yes. So uh, what is a product design sprint? You want to start off with that? Yeah, sure. So a formal product design sprint is in the Google world, uh, something that Google Ventures published a series of seven articles about. And the way they do it is it's a week-long exercise that day one is understand, day two is diverge, day three is converge, day four is prototype, and day five is validate. And the way they go through it is every week starts with a challenge statement, and the whole goal is coming up with the best solution possible to that challenge statement by the end of the week. And this is how Google Ventures uh, runs their internal design team and working with their portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that we took and I, I guess I did a little remix on, a ThoughtBot remix. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I think the origin for it is, um, well, I mean, for me personally, is that most ideas initially are bad ideas. So when you're building a product, how do you avoid spending time and money building something based on a bad idea to later find out you wasted all this time and money on a bad idea? Mm -hmm. And another part of it is continually asking why should something be built in a certain way. And you can't always ask why if you don't have a methodology for answering that question. Mm -hmm. So for me, in many ways, the design sprint and Elements of the design sprint are a way of answering that question, why should this thing be built in this way or, or not built in this way, mm-hmm. um, before we actually get to building it. Yeah. No, it, it's interesting to me because like, as, as a company, we're definitely very pragmatic. So if you say, okay, before we start any project, we're going to do five days of you know, talking in a conference room about it. That's something that we push back on initially, right? Like we we, we, would don't, we wouldn't do that if we didn't think it had really good results. And so we started trying this and just say, like, let's run an experiment and see how it goes. Ran it with a couple of clients. And I think the, the response has been almost unanimously positive. Uh, the clients like it because we're genuinely coming out of these things with a better idea and, or a vetted idea if it was the same idea. And the teams appreciate it because they get like a full overview of like what the landscape looks like and, you know, how the project is going to solve that. Uh, and so we've actually been doing this for almost all our projects these days. Yeah, I think we've been running them for about a year now. And surprisingly, it's even when we decide to not work with a client and it's like, look, this idea doesn't look like it's ready yet. Um, even us telling them that is like, okay, we're not going to build it. They're like, oh my God, thank you. This has been an amazing experience, which mm. is fascinating. Yeah. And I wouldn't see that coming out if we had just had like a week long kickoff meeting and not gone through all the steps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In many ways, I think it's it's very empowering from my perspective as a designer because and when I'm, when I'm tasked to build a product or features of a product, there's so many decisions that go into how that specifically come to fruition. And to be able to answer those questions and make the decisions to how it should be built, I need to have an understanding of the problem. I need to have other knowledge that can help me solve the challenges at hand. And a lot of the times, if you don't go through that process of uncovering what is it we're really dealing with? You know, who do, what does that guy think about it? What does she think about it? Like, what, what's some data behind this problem? What's history to it? It becomes really, really difficult to make any kind of decision about how to specifically implement something or facilitate uh, something. Yeah. 
So we sort of laid out the skeleton of what like what the different phases are. Can we put a little meat on those bones? Get a little more detail about what actually happens during these things? Yeah. So, I mean, the, you know, Alex kind of gave the overview of the five phases. I think those five phases can vary too, given the, the needs at hand of the client or the problem, whatever stage they're in with the product they're working on or business they're trying to grow. And that can like, there's a huge spectrum there. But the first day is that like really empowering day of trying That's to understand. Understand, yeah. Yeah, understand you know, what's, what is the challenge at hand? What is it we're focusing on? Where do we want to go? What are we trying to achieve? Who's involved? What does success kind of look like? Where have you come from? Understanding the most about the context we've chosen to work within as possible so then we can move into the next phases and everyone can be kind of the same playing field and have the same understanding. Mm -hmm. Cool. And then uh, day two is diverge. Yeah, so day two is expanding on, okay, now that we feel like we've kind of mapped the territory um, and we know generally where we're trying to get to, it's what are all the different possibilities that could get us there? Mm -hmm. um, so our exercises are, are around like kind of this concept of how might we X. So it's you're looking at storyboarding little mini pieces of what the product could look like and what kind of are the core concepts and how many different ways can those play out and you're not really looking for fitness, what's the most efficient route to get there, but more so like, okay, we're going on a road trip. We know generally where we want to end up, but what are all the stops that we want to make along the way and how many different routes possible can we take to get there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, having, having participated in one of these, that, I, I enjoyed that phase because it's a very blank piece of paper and sort of encouraged to try weird stuff and crazy things and like literally put stuff up on a wall and look at it and like, ah, how's that look? This seems crazy. But, you know, there's one or two nuggets of really good ideas within, you know, the craziness sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I think that for me, that's one of the most, there's creativity infused throughout, you know, all these different phases. But I'd say the the day two, the divergent phase, when you're trying to develop as many um, solution concepts as possible mm -hmm. and kind of not restraining yourself to, well, this isn't realistic or that's not actually feasible. Just going down those infeasible and unrealistic paths, you might discover something interesting and unique. And I think that there's that another collaborative um, kind of component there too, that kind of you get some external inspiration from the people around you, which is important for that. And I think the understand phase is crucial in getting to the second stage um, and developing understanding of the people and having empathy for other perspectives. Mm. Once you start seeing something from a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth viewpoint that you didn't have before, and you start kind of intersecting these different perspectives, you now have this new way of looking at the problem or the context, and you can kind of go wild with these ideas. Cool. And so day three is decide. So you sort of like grab some of the best ideas out of the diverge phase and, and start moving forward on them? Yeah. So it's, you're starting to look at, okay, which of these things are going to be either most effective or most efficient in getting us to solving our challenge statement? So it's looking at kind of, okay, now we have all these routes, which is the one that we personally feel is the right one for us? Mm -hmm. um, so it's taking those ideas, eliminating the ones that are maybe too outrageous uh, or that you're just not ready for yet and picking the, the single route that works best for you guys at that stage. Hmm. And then uh, day four is prototype. Yes, yeah, so that's just developing a prototype that focuses on trying to test the things that you know the least about or test the assumptions that you're potentially going to be relying on. Mm -hmm. And the prototypes can keep, take all different kinds of shapes. I personally like to try to get something that looks like it could be a real version of whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. Maybe not like a great or polished version, but something you could put in front of somebody, an unknowing um, person you brought in for this testing and research. Mm -hmm. 
they might not know that it's like a keynote prototype or something and it's all static. They might not. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The closest you can get to a working context, uh, or I guess the better you can fake it, the better your results typically. Mm. Right. Interesting. So it's worth actually spending a little time for some fidelity in there, at least fake fidelity. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think there's a big difference between putting something on, you know, sketch on paper, putting it in front of somebody and having that sketch turned into a somewhat realistic looking marketing page or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we usually try to test very small in scope, high in fidelity for our prototypes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a, a challenge with the prototype is before you get to the actual prototyping phase, really mapping out from the previous days, what things does it seem like we really don't understand about this challenge? Mm -hmm. What assumptions have we been making about these challenges? What are the riskiest out of all those things? Mm -hmm. And how might we test that through this prototype? And that might be using very explicit language and your copy in some way or putting some dummy links on a page and seeing if someone tries to click into those dummy links or if they'll respond to this very specific messaging so that you're trying to you know, pull out, is this assumption we've made on point or is it completely off and we need to reassess? Right. Hmm. Or are people interested in this concept or not at all? So, so a lot of this is sort of about decreasing risk, the risk of being wrong about a, a, a thing you've assumed. So you want to test those things that are, are riskiest to be wrong about. Right, definitely. Most definitely. And we've, we kind of see that your decision-making process cascades. So if you can kind of lock down some of your riskier things earlier, it informs things that would come later in the process, and you're not as worried about them. And you have to change less in the aftermath. Hmm. Interesting. And it means it's much harder to change things in the aftermath, too. Once you build something and put it into a product, it's much more difficult to take it out and even iterate on it than it is to just go focus on the next idea that's exciting. Mm -hmm. And especially once you bring developers in, it's although that code is making it work, you're pouring concrete on the decisions that you've made. Um, very rarely do I ever see in client work or just in general, it's like, hey, we ran this experiment and it kind of worked out. Let's keep that feature there, even if that feature is not necessarily maximally efficient or good for the end product. Yeah. It's hard emotionally to rip something out once you've got <laughs> it in there. It was yeah. funny. I, I did a, a product design sprint and we built this prototype that, you know, looked functional and like, like you said, it's fairly high fidelity. The back end was totally, you know, faked out, no tests, uh, a lot of jankiness going on there. And it was remarkable how hard it was to even throw that away. It's like, yeah, but it kind of yeah. works right now. It's like, no, it, it really doesn't. Uh, it, yeah. it, but it gives that impression and it, it's, it's, it's tough to even throw that thing away. Yeah. I wonder if there's some kind of just like training exercise that someone could practice to like become not just okay with but excited about getting to throw away hmm. code they've written or design they've done i think that could be a pretty powerful skill to have it sounds to me like what formal design school is like huh. so, yeah yeah well there's yeah. there so in uh in the developer world there's a thing called global day of code retreat where you get together with a bunch of people that are also interested in getting better at programming and you will solve a pro you'll write, write a program to do a certain task and you pair with somebody and you're intentionally given not enough time so it's like here's 25 minutes solve this problem with your pair. And so you do it in 25 minutes. Say, okay, throw it away. Now find a different pair and solve it again, but with this constraint. And then you do that again. Mm. And then, you know, here's a, now, now here's a totally different constraint. Do it with somebody else. And so you sort of get in the habit of like, you know, you build a thing, you don't have quite enough time, so it's not quite done and you have to throw it away every time. Right. That sounds very interesting. I think it's an interesting thing for, your, to like, for developing your own skills. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that building things that we practice on and then throw away purely for practice sake is something that as an industry I don't think we do enough of. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's so intriguing to me, Alex, when you, we talked about running a design sprint for something that didn't happen or that like you just said, like, yeah, we're, we're not going <laughs> to build this or like you shouldn't build this. I think that's awesome. Yeah. yeah and that, that should point. be okay and encouraged. Right. It's clearly not the case that every idea you have is, is a good one or every market that you think you should tackle wants your solution. Yeah, I think it's a great it's a great service to offer a customer. Maybe not the best if if we're trying to always build products for people, but I think it's it's the better service in the long run for the customer if they realize, you know what, I haven't really thought through this idea enough. There is too much uncertainty in this for me to feel comfortable spending this much money right. to start building something. I'm gonna go reassess what I'm doing here and yep. reevaluate. And maybe and hopefully come back. I think that would be exactly. you know, a really great outcome as well. Totally. Yeah. And I think it builds a lot of credibility too. It's like we're if we're willing to say like, well, you know, this doesn't seem like it's going to work, we shouldn't do it, even though, you know, we'd make money by telling you you should. Like that, <laughs> that person is probably more likely to come back and say, okay, now this thing's better. Let's let's actually build this. Yeah. Yeah. And at, at best, our software can only scale solutions. Like, so if we're scaling something that doesn't work, we're actually hurting your customers in the long run. Hmm. Bringing your bad idea to more people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and I think that's ultimately what what people come to us for is to build a product that enables a business, right? They're not looking to just build a product that can be a product. Not a product fits into some a larger context, right? It fits into you know a complex business ecosystem where there's customers and there's lots of other things happening. I think if I'm gonna be working on a product for people, I want to be considerate of all those aspects. Hmm. So we we've written about design sprints on the blog, I think. I think this is our second time talking about it in the podcast. Is there a good like primer for like getting started on this? If someone wanted to try one, yeah, I think I think taking a look at the the material that's out there, like the Google Ventures stuff, is really great. I think even looking into some design thinking stuff and some of the human centered design principles that IDEO writes about, and they've got a really great human centered design toolkit that goes through a lot of really interesting ways in which they develop understandings of people they're working with and design thinking processes that David Kelly and other people at at IDEO have have pioneered and established are really great processes for uh, being creative and developing lots of different solutions. I think that very much fits into the product design sprint stuff. Hmm. Um, I I think too that like anything, any kind of design process, it has to be like malleable. There's no hard lined, this is what a design sprint is, it goes exactly this way and everyone should do it exactly this way. I think you have to really assess where am I? What am I trying to do? And how can I take this process and, and fit it to my needs at this current time? Yeah. Like I've, I've run a design sprint before where um, some of the, the kind of phases didn't really fit in. Uh, like the understand phase made sense, um, but maybe developing a bunch of different solution concepts didn't because they came to us with a lot of prior work. Um, and maybe it was a different kind of focus that we needed. So in that, those cases, you kind of adjust the process to... And I think the the way that Google Ventures posts are written are intentionally vague. It's much so like, hey, here's how we do it for us. But like, really, the most important thing is you're getting a bunch of people together for, to get those different perspectives, and you're focusing on the outcome itself. And you're doing exercises that are meant to help move you forward, not necessarily just we're going to talk about the problem and maybe we'll come up with a solution. And I think that's the key differentiator, whether you call it a design sprint or whatever is up to you. Um, I think given our way that we adapted the Google Ventures post is to add a lot more business exercises. Mm. At ThoughtBot, we see a lot more greenfield products, whereas like Google Ventures, like they might put $40 million into a company and they're usually pretty late stage. So like Blue Bottle is not necessarily coming up with a new service for their coffee. It's more so like they're optimizing current things and they have a lot more longevity and research there. We, they don't necessarily need to test like, 
do people even want this thing? Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty clear that people want blue bottle coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, with a product that you know maybe is uh, an entrepreneur project for a bigger company or is someone that just has an idea and wants to bring that to market, there's a lot more market risk. And uh, we've, to compensate for that, added a lot of business exercises to get people thinking about uh, the entire value chain of their business. Cool. So I want to uh, change gears a little bit or switch gears to um, the jobs to be done framework. Which I think, did Clayton Christensen come up with this? Was that his thing originally? Yeah, I think that is, yeah. Okay. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Just an overview? I first got turned on to it from uh, Ryan Singer, the designer at 37 Signals, or the company formerly known as 37 Signals. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to call them right now. Mm-hmm. I know they want to go by Basecamp, but it just feels strange. <laughs> um, I, I love them. He was kind of touting this as... Uh, an interesting solution to think about problems. And I think for us, like when we're typically in software writing these user stories, I've seen a lot of our junior people go through and start to write user stories for the first time. And like, they'll write it very interestingly, like as a mom. And so like one of the examples was like, yeah, we were building a, a rethought out ticketing system for like an airline company. Mm-hmm. And this is like just a thought exercise. And one of our apprentices was going through and like, okay, so as a mom who's picking up a son, I want to know the time that the flight comes in. And it's like, actually, like the role that a person plays is very minimal because he could write that user story from 10 different perspectives and they each have little baked in assumptions. Hmm. And so it seems like there's something inherently, it's like as a grandma and it's like, well, okay, now that I'm saying as a grandma, there's all these assumptions that's like, oh, well, the grandma can't read as well, so we need to make the typography bigger. And like, really, that doesn't have anything to do with solving the problem. It's just confusing the matter. Hmm. So jobs to be done is taking it back and looking at like, what is the actual job someone's trying to accomplish with this and taking the pressure off the user and being in a similar focused mindset. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I'm not as familiar with the jobs to be done framework as I'd like to be. I think a lot of industry is still stuck in kind of user story land, and I don't really since I haven't been able to practice that much with jobs to be done stories, I don't really know if I can make an opinion on which direction I like to go. But what I like about the jobs to be done stories is for me, it seems much more outcome focused. What is the outcome needed in this situation as opposed to a user story, which to me ends up being a lot more implementation focused. Hmm. It's from this person's perspective, I need this thing. It's a fairly good way of communicating what needs to be built, but it lacks the kind of higher level understanding of what outcome that built thing needs to achieve, uh, which for me is like what I care about the most. Hmm. Just interesting translation from getting to, okay, here's an outcome that needs to be achieved in this situation. Right. And then breaking that into implementable pieces. Cause I don't think you can retain that jobs to be get done kind of format with explicit implementable pieces that you kind of have in your project management tools or whatever you have. Yeah. Just to restate, just to make sure we're being clear, like the way Clayton Christensen describes it is a typical way of thinking about how you're going to market something is like, who are the people? Like, what are their attributes? How old are they? Are they married? Things like that. Uh, And he says that when you do that, you tend to focus on what you as a company want to sell as opposed to what customers actually need. And so if you flip it around and think instead, uh, what are the needs that people have? Like, what what are the needs they have and how do they hire your product to solve that need? Like, what is the job right. that your product could get hired for? Right, exactly. Yeah, and the core example that I always see, which I actually don't know, if, is it real or not, the milkshake story? I think that's based on a real yeah, case study. <laughs> okay, yeah, and it's like, okay, so for a fast food company selling milkshakes, it's like, we want to increase milkshake sales. 
And so the obvious product thing to do, I think coming from the old way of thinking is, oh, well, we need to make this milkshake more milkshakey. Mm-hmm. We need to have it be more flavorful and we want bigger sizes. And it's like, we want to make this milkshake a better milkshake-like thing. Mm-hmm. And when they did that in practice, it just didn't increase sales. Mm-hmm. Um, and through research and doing little exit interviews, as soon as someone had bought a milkshake, uh, they had kind of figured out that all these people had something in common, which was they all had a long commute. So really, like, the point of the milkshake wasn't necessarily to get a milkshake. It was something that fits this description of like, is portable and fits in a cup holder and is actually like something that you can use to entertain yourself and consume on your drive to work. And it'll, and so, it'll last the whole drive and it'll kind of fill you up and make you feel full. Right. And if you'd approach that from like, you know, as a father of two, <laughs> I want a milkshake so that it's like, it's yeah. the wrong way of looking at it. You, you miss that. Yeah, I think you're missing the underlying truths that will empower the creation of like a more appropriate product. Right. And it's like, okay, if you're a mother, then you probably want like maybe you want a different flavor milkshake. And if you're a child, then you maybe want more sugar or whatever. And you're just you're missing the fact that people have a job they need this milkshake right. to do. Yeah, and I think it's it's hard to uncover like another thing about user stories or any kind of these stories in general is that you know I kind of feel like when you're sitting around in a room creating a user story, I can't help but ask myself the question: Is that your customer's actual story? Right. Like, did you get that from a real customer or are you creating this story as a way to capture how to build a feature that you invented? Exactly. And I think it's harder to do that kind of thing with a jobs to be done story because it, it forces you to look a little bit deeper and in many cases actually know through interviewing and, and doing research with real people. Yeah. It's like you can write a story that, that motivates the thing you want to build anyway. It's like, oh, as a user, I want to invite all my friends to this product so that right. something... But it's like, do the users really have a job they want to hire an invitation feature for? Right. <laughs> and I mean, not all those are, that's not, you're not necessarily going to be wrong every time, but I still see that as fundamentally you're, you're anticipating a need. You're anticipating something. I think you can do better than anticipating. Hmm. So another thing I wanted to cover was uh, we are, I don't know if we talked about this publicly or not, uh, but we're launching a product design boot camp uh, through Metis, which is uh, sort of the sister program to our uh, Rails boot camp. Correct. Yeah. Are you guys involved in that? I helped write the curriculum. Gotcha. So that was really, really fun project. Kaplan had partnered with ThoughtBot through Metis uh, to do Ruby on Rails boot camps. So that was kind of awesome because we had been running similar type boot camps, I think in much shorter, like week long durations, kind of intro to Ruby on Rails. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a, a natural extension for us to make that bigger and compete with some of the other boot camp brands. Um, and that, for us, had been going really, really well. So I was approached uh, four or five months ago to think about what it would look like to do a product design version of that. And so through that, we came up with kind of, okay, product design, what we need to get these people to do is start building products. And we ended up breaking them into smaller piecemeal exercises. So what, an example of one of the products that we'll have students do is building a weather app. But on our end, we actually built all the JavaScript functionality for the weather app. So all they're going to be doing is they're going to be coming in and doing all the product thinking and research and HTML and CSS and delivery for that product. But the development work's already been done. Hmm. Uh, So you're able to focus on kind of single lenses or aspects of the product design process 
and understand how those pieces fit together as a whole through building lots of things that without that scaffolding wouldn't be possible. Mm -hmm. And then to wrap the course up, they're going to be working on their kind of passion project for a month and they're going to be getting instructor feedback. So I think it's going to be a really, really awesome thing. The first one starts uh, this fall in New York. Interesting. So it kind of mirrors how you would work at a place like ThoughtBot, where development work is not something you, you wouldn't have to do the development work. You're responsible for the HTML, CSS design side of things. Most definitely. Like, I think it would be fantastic if we hired all the students out of one of these. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how Carol Ann and I modeled the curriculum, is how would you build us? Right. <laughs> Which other organizations, I think, are very interested in yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, we, we, and we actually did hire two people out of the last uh, bootcamp class as developers or apprentices here at ThoughtBot. So it's kind of working, that, that mentality. Totally. And the gap in the market for us is I review a lot of our design candidates for ThoughtBot. Mm -hmm. And sadly, the number one reason for having to reject people is them coming from a marketing agency background and never having worked on a product before. Mm. And it's really frustrating to try to hire those people because they just haven't worked on a product before. And it's so starkly different. Hmm. So we can't. What do they lack? Um, so it's, it's very different goals when you have just marketing or just product. Like, I think when you're working on product, you have to think of things a little more holistically. When I'm, I'm working on a marketing page, it's more so like, how do I optimize conversion for just this one step? I'm usually not thinking about like, okay, well, how does this, the way we market this, affect retention in the future? Whereas when you're working on a product, you're thinking of so many more pieces at once. And I think it's a hard transition for people. And it's not something that we can necessarily hire someone and then bill for their work on day one um, without have them having that product experience. So a lot of the product design course is taking people who have traditionally worked at marketing agencies or have some graphic design background, but are just kind of frustrated with the scope of the work. Hmm. They're like, great, I'm able to sell things, but I want to make things that people are using. I want to be making apps. And so it's taking their graphic design background and then expanding that thinking to an entire product. Hmm, interesting. Is the HTML and CSS kind of, not an afterthought, but that's like supporting skills where the more important skill is being able to think of the product holistically and, and make smart decisions that way? Yeah, I'd say so. I think I mean, the HTML and CSS, stuff, that's, that's implementation. And I don't know what to implement unless I've done that product work and thought holistically about the problems and the solutions and devised a plan. So it's it's funny that I actually have you both here in an interview because you are both uh, taking leaves of absence on going off to do some fun stuff. Yes. Do you guys have uh, any idea what you're going to be doing? A little bit, but kind of just leaving it open and seeing what happens when I get into it. I do a little bit of traveling around, just visit some friends in different cities around the country. And to get to see a lot of the Bay Area. I've been out here, here for like two years and I was really excited to come out here because of all the beautiful geography and natural environment. Growing up on the East Coast, I didn't get to experience the West Coast outdoors. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take more advantage of that. But yeah, just kind of leaving things open. Cool. How about you, Alex? Uh, same here. I uh, had a couple little side project things that I want to launch or wrap up on and just haven't had the time to. Yeah, also just traveling around. I want to go camping. That sounds like so much fun. Uh, biking around the city is fantastic. And we're kind of hitting that like, perfect summer where I'm starting to feel guilty working inside all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, but what if we could go play outside and have a picnic? And it'll be nice to have that happen every day for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, uh, I hope you both have a great time with that and get whatever you're seeking out of it. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks, Ben. You can, you're always welcome to come visit us. Oh, thanks. <laughs>
Well, we have our summer summit coming up, so I'll be in SF in not too long, actually. Oh, that's true. We'll see you out in August. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Uh, well, guys, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, chatting today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Absolutely. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 106. Thanks for listening.